during the days of the Puritans and the colonists, it was customary to preach several election day sermons just before the people would vote for the representatives. And for the next few weeks, therefore, we will follow that custom, beginning with lessons from the Reformation on tyranny. Our old covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 23. Second Samuel and chapter 23. The first four verses, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who is raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Paul, picking up on Second Samuel in chapter 23 and Romans in chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, by the same spirit the Apostle Paul, moved by God himself, tells us this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause ye pay tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Tyrannical dominion over men by men began when Adam sought to usurp the throne of God and it has been going on ever since. Adam's actions was a rebellious attempt to undermine the legitimate king and replace him with an illegitimate king. He sought to establish himself, man, as king and to de-establish Christ as king. And throughout history, governance by civil rulers was looked at in light of legitimacy and illegitimacy. Either a government was legitimate or a governor was legitimate or he was illegitimate. Either he was righteous or he was unrighteous. Either he was following God's law order of right and wrong or he was not. There was no middle ground. In light of this, there were a number of questions that were asked during the Reformation and during the period of the colonists that still must be asked today. Number one, what makes a ruler legitimate? Number two, what are the identifying characteristics of a legitimate ruler? How, in other words, how can we know when a ruler is legitimate or when he is not? When a ruler illegitimizes himself from his office, how do we know when he's illegitimate or when he's legitimate? Number three, when a ruler becomes a tyrant, what did the reformers do about it? And what can we learn from the lessons of the past? Well, Jesus tells his disciples that tyranny and oppression 
in any way, shape, or form, whether it's in the family, in the church, or in the state, tyranny and oppression is the natural tendency of men who desire to function as a godlike deity over others in order to oppress them for their own evil purposes. And he tells his disciples this in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. Notice what he says. And Jesus called them unto himself and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Now this statement defines the nature of the true king as opposed in contrast to the wicked, rebellious, illegitimate king. While the illegitimate king rules oppressively for the sake of his own purpose and glory, the legitimate king rules as a minister of God, a shepherd, a shepherding ruler, a servant of the people under God, under the sovereign rule of God himself, ruling according, and this is where is is very important to recognize, according to the law of God. Now, generally speaking, a ruler who is legitimate shows himself as such according to his works. You can know them by their works. This is not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It is very simple. Even a child is known by his doings. So generally speaking, a ruler who is legitimate shows himself according to his works, or politically speaking, according to his policies, which would either favor God's church and God's people, or if he was illegitimate, they would not favor God's church or favor God's people. So make no mistake about it. No man, and this is important, especially in the day in which we live, no man is perfect in his rule. I want to stress this, because there are so many in the realm of orthodoxy in the realm of Christian orthodoxy, that are looking for a perfect ruler that matches up to 2 Samuel chapter 23. You're not going to find them. Perfection, however, is not the standard. The standard is righteousness. A ruler must rule righteously. His policies, his actions, his principles must be in line with Scripture. David and Solomon, in concert with many of the judges of Israel, they, they weren't perfect. And yet Israel loved them and God raised them up. They were not perfect men. Yet they were righteous men. And they had a heart for God. And they had a heart for what was good and right. And they wanted to liberate the people from tyranny. They were not tyrants. They were liberators. So no man, and I don't care who he is, no man who still has the Adamic nature can rule perfectly. Only Christ. So to look for a ruler that is perfect, you might as well forget it because you're not going to find him. And sometimes that's an excuse not to vote at all, not to choose anyone. Now, if you have two wicked rulers like Caligula and Nero, you can, you can abstain from voting. Only Christ can rule perfectly, and yet the man who rules according to the dictates of Scripture should be considered a legitimate ruler. And this is what the Reformers wanted. They wanted a ruler, they wanted a man that would maintain the liberty of Christ's church and the free exercise of the gospel of the kingdom. And we've seen what happens when a ruler does not respect God's church. 
We've seen what happens when a ruler tries to silence the pulpit and silence the word of God because they believe that they are God. So the reformers wanted a ruler that would maintain the liberty of Christ's church and the free exercise of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, would, would that ruler make mistakes? Would, would he depart at times from the law of God? Well, of course he would. We're just men. These are just men we're talking about. But that did not make his position illegitimate. And reformers understood that. Rulers are to be servants of God and servants of the people for good, functioning as nurturing fathers as it is defined by the scripture. In other words, every law and public policy must in some way reflect either the direct dictates of God's law or the principles contained therein. It is therefore essential for the ruler to make a biblical distinction between good and evil. And the only way to do that is by using the definition of Scripture. You cannot redefine good and redefine evil according to your own dictates. Now, the biblical ruler must be able to promote justice as well, according to Scripture. And this means that everyone is equal under the law. Robert Thoburn in his book, The Christian in Politics, explains it this way. He says, The state is to be a ministry of justice. But what is justice? The state is to punish evildoers. So, how do we determine who is an evildoer? These questions are important because liberals love to talk about justice. Especially, they are fond of the term social justice. It has become one of their buzzwords. We must look to God's word to learn what justice is. Justice must be delineated in terms of the Bible. Other words, justice becomes nothing but humanism and the civil ruler becomes nothing more than an agent of humanism. End quote. Now, even though tyranny and tyrannical rule existed throughout history, it was not until the European Reformation that a political theology concerning government, law, and justice, as well as public policy, was solidified, even codified by the reformers during the Reformation. But what was needed, and they understood that need, was a theology of the state. In other words, in order to effectually combat abuses of power by wicked men who would be as God, they needed a theology of the state. As theologian Dr. R.J. Rushton, he stated, he says, quote, a Christian theology of the state must challenge the state's claim of sovereignty. Only Jesus Christ is Lord and sovereign, and the state makes a moloch of itself, that is, a murderous idol, when it claims sovereignty. The church must be roused out of its polytheism and surrender. The crown rights of Christ the King must be proclaimed. The forerunner of much of the Reformation's teachings must be held sacrosanct. St. Augustine had this to say about a tyrannical perversion of justice. Very simply, he said this, Justice being taken away, then, what are kingdoms but great dens of thieves? Now, an honest reading of Scripture clearly demonstrates that the Holy Book has an abundance, an awful lot to say about politics, law, and government. I, I marvel when, when preachers say to me, pastors who should know better, theologians who should know better, say to me, well, you know, we can't be talking about politics because the Bible doesn't talk about politics. Well, what's the whole of the Old Testament talk about? Who rules? It's all a question of who is in, in charge. 
So an honest reading of the scriptures clearly demonstrates that the Holy Book has an abundance to say about politics, law, and government. And that is because scripture is all about God's sovereignty, his rule as the lawgiver, judge, and king, and he has everything to say about governance and law. Throughout the five books of Moses, continuing through Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, God distinguishes between righteous government, law, and politics, and contrasts them with wicked government, wicked law, laws, and wicked politics. And these lessons are also sprinkled throughout the books of the prophets, finding their way powerfully into the New Testament, as John the Baptist, Christ, and the apostles were wrestling against the corrupt ecclesiastical and the civil magistrates of the scribes and Pharisees, the corrupt lawyers, and the wicked tyrannical civil rulers like Herod and Caesar. Now to ignore these historical lessons is to ignore the lion's share of biblical teaching which is given so that Christians, and this is why it's given to us, so that Christians, so that you and me, so that we might apply them to our own realm of governance, law, politics, and public policy. And so that we may make right decisions when it comes to government, law, and public policy. Now the reformers were keenly aware of the lessons of Scripture and they sought to teach what the Scriptures taught the pulpit was a place of instruction. It was not about giving the, 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 the football scores from the day before. It wasn't about anecdotal sermons. It was all about teaching. And the reformers knew that they were there to teach what the scriptures taught and then apply those teachings and to help the people to understand how to apply those teachings so that the word of God was effectual. It had an efficacy about it so that they would be able to apply those teachings, especially when faced with difficult periods of history, especially when faced with tyranny, which was often leveled primarily against the church. These were scripture men and their wives were scripture women. And as scripture men, they looked to both the Old and the New Testament for their counsel. So what did they look to? How did they begin? What did they look to? Well, they began by looking to Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 4. Notice what God tells Moses. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances, notice, in their wicked ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk therein. And then he closes with the way he begins. I am the Lord your God. I am the covenant God. Then in harmony with the Old Testament law, Peter, being the scripture man, says we are to obey God rather than men. Where did he get that from? He got it from Leviticus chapter 18. Directly taken from the commandment of God, directly taken from the law of God, these men understood that once a government mandated any law which violated the law of God, that government became illegitimate, it became corrupt, and it was no longer a righteous government. It no longer could claim legitimacy. And obedience by the masses was then forfeited. Obedience to that kind of a ruler was no longer mandated by God. And as men of faith, they wisely understood that, which was an undisputed fact, that as the creator of heaven and earth, God was able, legitimately able, to claim absolute and total jurisdiction over every area of life 
thought and element of civilization. No ruler could circumvent the word of God, the law of God. And by internalizing this fundamental truth, they were then able to decisively act upon it in a God-glorifying resistance to unlawful government. Theodore Beza, who became one of the greatest leaders of the Reformation after Calvin, explains it this way. He says, There is no other will than that of God alone, which is eternal and unchanging. The rule of all justice and righteousness is of God. He is therefore the only one we are obligated to obey without any exception. And concerning obedience due to rulers, if they were always the mouth of God to command, it could also be said without exception that they should be obeyed as unquestionably as God. But since the complete opposite is often the case, this condition must be established. We must obey them provided... They do not command acts of wickedness or things contrary to the Christian religion. Piety and love are the limits of obedience due to magistrates. So whatever a magistrate says that we are to do, if it goes against the word of God, we are not to do it. The entire conflict from the beginning of time and throughout recorded history, which the Reformation focused upon was the question, the question, and here is the question. The question is who rules? Is it man or God? Is it Christ or Caesar? Is it God or the Roman Pope? Is it scripture or tradition? Is it God's law or man's law? Rationalism or revelation? Positive law or theonomic law? Who rules? What is the standard? That's the question. And so the question was, is the state God? Or can the state act as God to arbitrarily decree laws which go against the law of the sovereign? Now what the reformers understood is that the source of law in any society is the God of that society. And those that create law out of nothing are acting as God the lawgiver. Let me say that again. The source of law in any society is the God of that society. So if the law comes from the White House, they are claiming themselves God. If the law comes from the justices, the source of law, they're claiming themselves to be God. If they are following the scriptures, harmonizing with God's law, they need to be obeyed. Otherwise, we have a problem. While those in power may function under the illusion that they are supremely omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, we have to recognize, and we have to make others recognize this as well, even those who preach from the pulpits, that they are not God. The state is not God. Nor will they ever be God. For God has had them in derision. Remember, when the kings of the earth galvanize themselves in conspiracy against the Lord and His anointed in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110, that is when God brings the wrath. R.J. Rushton, he rightly observes this. He says, quote, When men set forth their own versions of the law, they thereby set forth their will as the governing power and authority and their ideas about justice as true righteousness. It is thus inevitable that such a humanistic state will wage war against Christ and his church and the entire realm. End quote. And so the question, as the reformers asked, was, is the king the law or is the law the king? 
This is the question that the great reformer Samuel Rutherford posited in his work, Lex Rex. Was the law over the king, Lex Rex, or was the king over the law, Rex Lex? During this period, this was the question. And drawing from the historical account of law and public policy, evident throughout antiquity, during and throughout the time of the Reformation, in concert with biblical history and various doctrines of the Old and New Testament, Rutherford concluded that the law of God always reigned supreme over the will of the prince. The prince was subject to the will of God. The prince was subject to the law of Scripture. Unlike Brutus Mornay, and I know many of you have never even heard of these people, but this is why people need to know these things. This is what the church needs to be teaching. Because ideas have consequences. And the ideas of men that have come before us are dictating things that are with us today, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And we are a woefully ignorant people. But this man, Mornay, unlike this man, Brutus Mornay's approach to the justification of resistance, and he also wanted people to resist tyranny, in his work, Vindice Contra Tyrannus, Rutherford refused to argue his case from Brutus Mornay's natural law theory position. Instead, Rutherford said you can't argue resistance against a tyrant unless you have an absolute authority, and that only absolute authority is the scripture. It's not natural law, because that could be anything. You can't argue against tyranny from man's reason, because man's reason is fickle, it's, it's unreliable, it's sinful, it's fallen. So Rutherford said, when we argue against tyranny, we must argue from the scriptures. So he stated that whenever a prince, king, or civil ruler willfully violated and usurped the law, which he defined as the law of God, he or she, because there were days when there was a she as a tyrant, the ruler invalidated his or her office. So once they departed from the law of God, their office was invalidated. They were no longer a legitimate ruler. He stated that any violation of God's law in effect made the civil ruler, and he said it this way, they were an outlaw. Could you imagine? Can you imagine? Posting on Facebook? This is the historical truth of where we've come from and where we need to be going. In fact, no longer was he or any of his laws of overreach to be looked at as legitimate, they were not to be obeyed by the citizenry. Once the rulers' laws were deemed unlawful, resistance, they believed, was the duty of the subjects, since he was no longer acting as a minister of good in behalf of God's word. I find it interesting that in the annals of history, when the church excommunicated the king, one of the Henrys, I think it was Henry II, the king stood in the snow outside of the priest's house, of the Pope's house at that point, begging to be reinstituted and having his excommunication lifted because he knew that excommunication meant he was illegitimate. And if he was an illegitimate ruler, identified by the church, the citizens would revolt. So he begged three days in the snow would to God the church would have that power today. Would to God that Christians would become lions once again instead of sheep prepared for the slaughter. 
if the tyrant was left in his position of power, the citizens would be in danger of coming under the iron fist of a wicked man. Tyranny was to be immediately eliminated, immediately met with resistance, and if the tyrant refused to repent, he would be guilty and found guilty of a capital offense, first against God and then against the people. And this is what happened during the period of the English Revolution when King Charles I was executed for tyranny against God and the English people like Cromwell and Parliament. What to God they would raise up and teach people what righteousness really is. Now picking up on this fundamental principle of law and order, Thomas Jefferson, not even really an orthodox man, but he wrote in 1787 a letter to William Stephen Smith, the son-in-law of John Adams. Notice what he said. And let me preface by saying he was not a violent man, but he understood that tyranny brings violence. He said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. And this is why the Virginia State flag logo reads Sex Sempera Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants while parading an image of liberty stomping on the neck of a tyrannical Caesar whose crown has fallen from his head. And while Jefferson drew his logic from Mornay's natural law presuppositions, he was nevertheless accurate in his conclusion. Notice what Rutherford said. He says, Tyranny being a work of Satan is not from God because sin, either habitual or actual, is not from God. The power that is must be from God. The magistrate, as magistrate, is good in nature of office and the intrinsic end of his office, but he is a minister of God for the good. And therefore, a power ethical, political, or moral to oppress is not from God. And it's not a power. And there is no more from God, but from sinful nature and the old serpent, than a license to sin. My good friend and lion in the faith, author Matthew Torella, in his work, The Doctrine of Lesser Magistrate, a proper resistance to tyranny and a repudiation of unlimited obedience to civil government adds this. The state's authority is not autonomous, nor unlimited. Rulers are not to contravene, violate, oppose, or contradict God's law. Citizens are not bound to uphold unlimited obedience to the civil government. The king is a king precisely because he rules in the fear of the Lord and according to his law. When the king makes a law contrary to God's law, he becomes a tyrant. And again, may I say once again, this is not rocket science. This is elemental. Rutherford, like so many others before him, had to contend with the theory of the divine right of kings against which his writings of Lex Rex referred. Now the theory of the divine right was a recipe for tyranny in England during most of the 17th century. And what the divine right of kings stated was the king is God walking on earth. He speaks as God and therefore you must obey him. Now while the overbearing reigns of James I and Charles I filled the first half of of the century and where Charles II and James II ruled in the last half, this theory continues. Make no mistake about it, this theory continues in our modern day. According to this theory, the ruler gets his office directly from God, and therefore he answers to no one. 
But God, I don't know which God he's answering to, if he's a tyrant, but that's another issue. And in this way, he's saying, I am God. I am God marching on earth in the same way as Jesus Christ, the God-man, walked on the earth as the king. This notion was simply a repackaging of the tyrannical rule reaching as far back as the pharaohs and the Roman Caesars. They all thought themselves God-men. They all thought themselves divine. They could do no wrong. They could micromanage everything and they could be the overbearing God over the people. Now, even though the Council of Chalcedon, and many of you don't know what that is either, and you need to know that, in 451, the Council of Chalcedon, in AD 451, that council sought to dispel any notion that a human being can be both God and man, other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But today, the state thinks that they're both God and man. They're omniscient, they're omnipresent, they're omnipotent. Nothing is new under the sun. Now, while this idea of human deification by a ruler may not be articulated, I'm sure no president or king or tyrant says that he is God, it's evident in his actions. Jurist Sir William Blackstone, who played a leading role in the establishment of the English common law, completing the work of King Alfred's work on the law of Moses, understood the tendency of man to become tyrannical whenever he departs from ruling in the fear of the Lord. Whenever he is given power, Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. His commentary set the stage for the jurisprudence of the founders, even though he held, and he did held, he did hold to a natural law of reasoning, and for the most part was an enlightenment thinker. Some of his writings clearly appealed to the law of God as the only valid standard for justice. He said this, The laws laid down by God are the eternal immutable laws of good and evil. This law, dictated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this, the law of God. Our nation was founded on these quotes. How have the mighty fallen? In the early part of the 18th century, this idea later took another form with George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel, another name you need to know, who declared that the state was God marching on earth. And it was the state, not God, that had divine authority. And that divine authority, he said, should never be questioned. He saw the state as having all authority in direct contradiction to Christ's declaration in Matthew 28 where he says after the resurrection, after the victory that he gained, where he says all power is given to him in heaven and in earth. Hegel's doctrine was simply a reintroduction of Machiavelli's work, The Prince, where Machiavelli declared the king as the supreme unquestionable ruler over the people. Hegel declared the state as the unquestionable, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-controlling sovereign over his people for good, or as in most cases for evil. And this doctrine was sheer idolatry, and it challenged one of the most important and fundamental doctrines of Scripture, the sovereignty of God. That is what's being challenged here. Adding to Blackstone's thoughts in 1860, and perhaps even refuting Hegel, John Wingate Thornton declared this. He said, We may safely assert these two things in general without undermining government. 
One is that no civil rulers are to be obeyed when they enjoin things that are inconsistent with the commands of God. All such disobedience is lawful and glorious. All commands running counter to the declared will of the sovereign, supreme legislator of heaven and earth are null and void, and therefore disobedience to them is duty, not a crime. For the reformers, every aspect of life, especially where it concerned governance, law and order, was at its root an issue of sovereignty. Who rules? R.J. Rushdie again explains exactly what sovereignty means. He says this, The word sovereign comes from the Latin super, that is, above, so that a sovereign in the normative sense is one who is above all. One who is above all is independent and unlimited by any other and has independent and original authority and jurisdiction that can only be described in the God of Scripture. The Reformation thought that the kingdom of God had come and the Lord Jesus was the king of nations, presently, presently, at this very moment, reigning within the realm of history, men and nations. The Dr. Robert Fugate, another modern-day theologian, a great faithful man, says this, The doctrine of God's sovereignty is no mere metaphysical dogma which is devoid of practical value, but is one that is calculated to produce a powerful effect upon Christian character and the daily walk. The doctrine of God's sovereignty lies at the foundation of Christian theology and in importance second only to the divine inspiration of the scriptures. It is the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped. It is the golden millstone to which every highway of knowledge leads and from which they all radiate. It is the cord upon which all other doctrines are strung like so many pearls, holding them in place and giving them unity. The doctrine dethrones, it dethrones man and exalts the triune God as absolute Lord, thereby destroying the idolatry of man as God and the false religion of man as being the center of all things. It humbles man by taking away his pride, especially in the notion of being sovereign in his own salvation. The sovereignty of God denounces all false gods and false religions. It also lays the foundation of man's mission, which is expressed in the dominion covenant of Genesis 1, 26-28. It encourages submission to God's will. In the midst of our planning, we must acknowledge that the sovereignty of God may allow our plans to succeed or He may alter or overrule our plans. It provides peace, security, and comfort to the believer and guarantees the final triumph of good over evil, truth over falsehood, and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Ultimately, it evokes adoration, awe, and wonder in our worship and in our life's endeavors. The Reformers reestablished in the mind of the Christian community an acute sense of God's supremacy over men and nations. It was through the reintroduction of the doctrine of God's sovereignty that the Reformation would begin the psychological reorientation of the masses. And that happened from the pulpits. The transforming of men's minds to recognize the doctrine of God's sovereignty and what it meant for all areas of life. Okay, so how did the Reformers deal with affiliations? Did they have any affiliations? Well, Charles V 
was the king over the entire Holy Roman Empire during the days of the Reformation. He was not a godly man, a Roman Catholic, an idolatrous man, not a very kind man. He wanted Luther to be hunted and executed, declared him an outlaw because of his teachings. The Holy Roman Empire under Charles V, extender of most of Central Europe, and at that time it was being threatened by a common enemy, of Christianity, Islam. The problem was that Charles was a Roman Catholic. He had been very unfriendly to Luther and the entire cause of the Reformation. Suspecting, however, that the Muslims would soon attack, he pleaded with the leaders of the Reformed nations to band together with him to ward off the invasion. His argument was that if the Muslims attacked the empire, where there was still division between Charles and the reformers, the Muslims would then ultimately conquer what was then considered Christendom. What he was seeking was a confederation of these two groups. Even though they might have been diametrically opposed, they still had a common goal, liberation. Liberation from the tyrant Islam, from the destruction of Christendom. Even though Charles and the reformers opposed each other, he was calling them to come together for a specific outcome in order that their nation would continue. We stand on that threshold today. We have elections coming up. We have things happening in our Commonwealth of Virginia. We stand in the balance here. We cannot think that we're going to get a man who is perfect and pure. But we have to get a man who is committed to liberating us from the tyranny of the, of, of, the, of the liberal, wicked conspirators against Christ. Charles had identified a common enemy. If that enemy was not defeated, it might mean the end of Christendom and perhaps the hope of the development of Western civilization as we know it today. And so by temporarily unifying with Charles in a common cause, these godly men of the Reformation, understanding what Second Samuel 23 was all about, maintaining their position and their strength going forward, they were going to unify with Charles. And their unification with Charles ended up reorientating the Christian faith back to its moorings by reorientating the entire culture Godward. We are the recipients of their wisdom today. And we must use that wisdom in our day, in our time, to defend against the tyrant that we are faced with even today. And this is why we must stand fast in faith and encourage against tyranny wherever it exists, in the same way as our reformational forefathers did. And this we shall do. God have mercy on us. Amen.